Good morning, Grace Church. Uh, it's good to see you. Uh, is it still wet outside? Still damp? Uh, baptisms are awesome, but you didn't know you were getting baptized on your way into church. God works in those ways sometimes. My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, excited to be here. Uh, a quick disclaimer. Uh, our copier is down. These are first world problems, people. Our copier is down, so I couldn't print the sermon, and so you get to look at an Apple product. Uh, it is what it is. I apologize. Uh, turn to your, ba- your Bibles to Acts 14. We're going to be there in a moment. Uh, if you're new, we've been going through Acts since the week after Easter. And so we're going through the entire uh, book with a few different little breaks. But the book of Acts was written by Luke, same guy as the Gospel of Luke. And it really is how the church first began. It's the foundation laid for the explosion of the Christian church And based on Acts is how the rest of the New Testament was written. And so it's really foundational for our faith. And so I'm excited to go uh, there. Uh, Real quick, I said this in the first service. I'm trying to like keep my hands in my pockets. And here's why. My 14-year-old son roasts me. And when he roasts me, he goes, this is daddy. Everybody repent and look at the Bible and pray and And so I'm a little self-conscious, so I put my hands in my pockets. And so last service, I was successful and not successful. And then I went outside of service, and I was lovingly rebuked. And someone said, Scott, get roasted, because we need your hands out of your pockets so that we could see the animation inside of it, whatever. So um, forgive me, whichever one I do. Um, All right. Who has heard of a guy named Jim Jones from the 70s. Raise your hand if you heard of the guy. This is him. Not to be mistaken by John Jones, who is the UFC heavyweight champion of the world. I say that, some of you are like, I don't know who either of these dudes are. I say that because when I hear Jim Jones, I think John Jones and his next fight that's coming up and I get excited about it. But that's not the story. That's not what we're talking about at all. Jim Jones uh, was uh, born in Indiana and he was a guy that, I think he came from a Christian home, but he grew up in the church, and as he grew up, his theology got weird. And he started a Christian cult called the People's Temple. And the People's Temple operated in between 1955 and 1978. And Jim Jones uh, was a gifted communicator and preacher and teacher, but he started claiming that he had divine ability. And he started claiming, in fact, that he himself was a God and that he had some special abilities. In fact, and I'm not making up the story, he claimed that he could fly. So homie went on top of a roof. I'm not making this up. He went on top of a roof and said, look, guys, I could fly. And he goes to fly and he falls down and breaks his arm. He could not fly. And so he made up an excuse and yet he convinced his followers, almost a thousand of them, to follow him. Eventually, in the mid-70s, he said, hey, uh, there's a, he was paranoid about what was happening in America, and so he flew and, and asked his followers to come with him to Guyana, which is a country in South America, and they settled at a piece of land that they called Jonestown. There's a lot that went on there, went on there but they were with Jim Jones constantly in, in this settlement. And they got to know him really well, and a lot of his followers, they reported, or they they said to reporters later, that the closer we got to Jim Jones, 
the more human we saw that he was. We knew after a while we realized that he wasn't God. He didn't have special abilities. In fact, he was something completely altogether different, which we would later find out. But he wasn't who he claimed to be, who they wanted him even to be. You and I have the tendency to look at people and look at things, here we go again, uh, to give us what they don't have the ability to give us, like the followers of Jim Jones. And so what we see in the book of Acts is this story where the early church, the early church is fighting against this tendency to look at people, places, and things to satisfy us, to be God to us when they don't have the ability to be God to us. And so their fight was that people far from God would hear of God and would know God and that they would forfeit and abandon their false gods. The past couple of weeks, uh, Pastor Josh has been taking us through Acts 13. And Acts 13 is Paul and Barnabas, and they're on a missionary journey. Uh, and they start down in Antioch. And here's the map. You see the arrows of their travels. And they, they start down to Antioch of Syria. And there's a few different Antiochs. And they travel, and there's so much that happens. And that's what we've been going through the last couple of weeks. That Antioch is the one down on the far right. And it is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, right on the Mediterranean Sea. And so the last few weeks, we've been reading through all that happened. The roller coaster of proclaiming God's word and the persecution they received. Just all the different things. Where we pick up our story, and what Steve just read is the beginning of 14, where they're in the northern Antioch, and then they travel about 90 miles to Iconium. That's where our story is. Chapter 14, uh, it's an awesome chapter. Uh, and there's a progression to the story. There's constantly the preaching of the gospel, claiming that Jesus is the Messiah along their travels. And then now in Iconium, that Paul and Barnabas are preaching the proclaimed gospel of Jesus Christ. And then usually, just like always, there's some opposition, there's some persecution. Uh, every time it's, it's boldly proclaimed, there are a lot of people who believe, but then there's some who don't believe, and, and that's what happens. And uh, a lot, like the other stories, there's a demonstration of the gospel. We'll talk about that in a moment. There's more persecution in this chapter. This is the chapter where, where Paul is stoned, not that stoned, another stone, the, the stone with rocks. And they, they believe he is being blasphemous. And so they try to kill him. They attempt to kill him. And they think he's dead, but he's not. And so the other disciples and followers get him, and he gets up, and he goes right back to preaching. He's resilient. And so all of this happens in this roller coaster of the gospel moving forward and pressing forward, and the church is growing. The church is propelled. And so what we're seeing in this chapter is that the church, churches aren't just being established, but they're being strengthened. They're being encouraged. At the end is when they end their missionary journey back down at the original uh, Antioch of Syria. But what I'd like for us to do is look in the middle of chapter 14, where at verses 8 and 9, what we see is we see Paul and Barnabas there, and Paul is preaching. And he's preaching, and he's in this crowd of people, and they're all kind of gathered around, and they're listening. And over to the side, there's a crippled man who can't walk. And so Paul is preaching, and the guy here is listening to Paul's words. And it says that Paul looks intently at him. So he looks very intentionally and serious 
at the crippled man. And I feel like in this exchange of a moment, they have this like moment there, and there's not a lot of uh, other things that are said about their interaction other than he looks intently, and it says, Paul saw in him a faith to be made well. I don't know what that looks like, like just the ability to look at someone's eyes and you have the faith that's needed. And then Paul says to stand up, and he is healed by the power of God through the apostle Paul, and he stands up, and everybody witnesses this miracle. This is the demonstration of the gospel in chapter 14. So this happens. Paul is preaching the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then there's a demonstration of the power of said gospel. And everyone who witnesses, you would think that they would say, they just said this was Jesus, and then we saw the power of Jesus. I'm going to go towards this message and this faith in Jesus. That's not what they do. That's not what a lot of them do. So in verse 11, it says that when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. So the people noticed, and instead of looking at Jesus, what they were talking about, what they demonstrated, they looked at Paul and Barnabas and said, you're the gods, you're Zeus, you're Hermes. And they claimed that they were gods, not Jesus. And so they went even further. It says in 13 that the priest of Zeus in the town, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So not only did they say, you two are the gods, but they worshipped them. They wanted to offer a, a sacrifice, a, an act of worship to Paul and to Barnabas. Now, I want to pause for a moment in the story, and we'll get back to it. But when I hear this and when I first read this, it sounds absurd. It sounds like, like if someone were to come in right now and claim to be representing Jesus Christ to us and then demonstrate it through a miraculous, crazy demonstration of the power of God right here in front of us, I think the majority of us would look at that and say, oh, then that's real. What he's saying is real and it's demonstrating what is real. And so we would look at that. So I, when I read this, I, are you guys nuts? Like, this is absurd. But I want us to see something. Because the members of the people's temple looked for John, uh, John Jones, Jim Jones, to be something that he wasn't. They thought he could be God. And if he was God, I wanted to be a part of what he was a part of. Only the closer they got to him, they realized that he actually wasn't who he claimed to be, wasn't who they thought him to be. And so these people in the crowd hearing Paul, they're hearing life-saving words. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. And then they see a demonstration of it, and they don't get it. They're receiving a revelation. This is a gift of divine revelation to them, and they don't get it. They go right back to their default, right back to what they did believe, these man-made gods and idols. And so I know it's easy to hear a Bible story like this and, and just kind of pass right by it. Remember all the Bible stories of the Old Testament where they would, they would uh, actually carve a figure or create a statue, and they would create their God, and then they would carry it from town to town and place to place, 
and they would worship the thing that they just created. It's crazy. So maybe it's hard to see ourselves in the story because we're not carrying around idols. If one of you walks in one day with a statue, that's weird. That's just weird. Don't do that. But what we do is something similar, although different. This is what we do. Today, we tend to turn the gifts of God into God himself. We replace the real God with the gifts of God. Hear me out. It's all the things that we love and cannot live without. All the things that you and I are consumed with. They're not even bad things. Family. I'm obsessed with my boys. I'm obsessed with my wife. I'm a husband and a father, and I love my family. What on earth would I do without them? If I lost them, I have no idea. I'd fall apart. And sometimes I, I struggle because I think I, I, I place my worth in my boys. I place who I am, my identity, into my family. And what about money? We all want more of it, so we chase it. And the more we get, the more we can identify with that level. And that becomes part of who we are. What about our bodies? We seek sex and intimacy to fulfill something inside that it never actually fulfills. Or maybe for some of us, it's our careers. I don't know how many men I've talked to, everybody, but men I've talked to who struggle with not identifying with what they do. Because I do this, I am this. And so I, I'm, I'm a professor, I'm a teacher, I'm a mechanic or whatever. That's just who I am. The, the, the second question after what's your name is, what do you do? It's what we identify with. And those things, although they're gifts from God, we pursue them and devote ourselves to them as if they are God. It's almost as if we replace God with those things. It's a struggle. It's hard. The great theologian Jim Carrey, he said this, he said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they could see that that's not the answer. I didn't know the Grinch knew the gospel, man. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's got it. He knew. This is our context. We chase them. We chase these things. We chase these things and they become idols to us. And just like the people in the story, in a way we're no different. We all do it. It's whenever we look at anything or anyone and seek those things to satisfy us, to sustain us, to give us life. It's the great struggle of humanity. It's the great struggle of our life. It's, it's hard. It's the, the struggle of life, though, is not to love and worship the gifts of God, but to love and worship God himself. You see the difference between the two. Because so much, we, we struggle with it. I love and worship my family, but they're gifts from God. They're not God. Your friends, your job, your money, your house, they can't save you. They can't give you your purpose. They can't give you your meaning, your identity. Only God can do that. He's the creator, but instead we love the creation. It's difficult. It's what we feel and see and touch. It's out there in front of us. So we're pulled towards those things like gravity. And we constantly look at those things to do something for us. I desperately want my role as a pastor to find, give me meaning and purpose. What would I do without it, right? What would you do without the role of mother or boss? What would you do without all those things? But do those things have the ability to truly satisfy you, truly fulfill you? They're created things. They're beautiful. They're great. They're gifts. But they're gifts from God. They're gifts from the source, 
So Paul and Barnabas is hearing these people reject what is in front of them and turn back to things that will never fulfill them. And so the great irony is we look to these things to be to us that only God can be to us. We want those things to be good, but only God is good. He is the only one that's good. He's the only one that satisfies us. He's the only one. He's the only one that can fulfill you and I. The only one who knows every square inch of you and then therefore can define you because he created you. He's the only one. And the things we turn to leave us empty. So Paul and Barnabas, they can't stand for it. Like they're like, in no way, shape, or form is this okay. We just proclaimed the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the one. He is the Messiah. And then we demonstrated the power of Jesus Christ through this miraculous work. And you guys are going to give credit to your gods and not Jesus. So in 14, they're frustrated. Verse 14 says this. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments, they rushed out in the crowd, and they started crying out. Here's 15, listen to this. Men, why are you doing these things? We're also men of like nature, of like nature with you. And we bring you good news, listen to this part, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. They're asking, they're pleading, they're angry. Like, what are you doing? It's not us. We're not gods. It's him. It's Jesus. He's the only one. My translation, bro, are you nuts? Like, are you guys crazy? They aren't getting it. They completely miss it. The word vain that's used means empty and fruitless and useless. It means they're dead things. Whether good or bad, these are dead things. Dead things can't give you life. He's trying to tell them. Paul's trying to explain it, that everything you're turning to is actually empty. I'm giving you life with my words, and I'm showing you the power of Jesus who gives you life. During our uh, preaching team meeting this last Tuesday, we're talking through this chapter, and we were, we were wrestling over it together. Not physically, that'd be weird. Um, but we were, we were debating over it. And it was in a healthy way. It was really good. We were debating of of what's useful here to the us to the, and to the church. And so we were going back and forth, but I was asked this question. I was asked, who are we, they said, Scott, who are we in the story? Are we Paul and Barnabas? Are we the people that are hearing it, seeing it, and are blind to the things of God, and we're turned on to the things of this world? Who are we? So I, I, no, no hesitation. I said, we're neither of them. That, that was my response, my gut reaction. We're not, we're not either of them. And I was saying that because, I, to me, we're not Paul and Barnabas. We don't have the apostolic authority and power that they do. Theologically, you may disagree, totally okay. But we don't have that, in my humble opinion. But also, we're not, we're, we're not the people. I know in this room, there's a lot of saved, godly people here who are struggling, but we're pursuing the Lord. We know him. We believe in him. We're committed to him. We're Bible-believing Christians. And so it, it was a struggle for me to find us in here. But I've changed my answer. It's a preaching team. I don't know where you are. I want to repent, and I want to change my answer to you. Allow me to change it. Why? I do think we're more like the people because you and I have the tendency, we have the temptation, just like the people in the story, to look to dead things to give us life. 
You do that. I do that. We constantly look to these empty things, whether good or not so good, to fill us, to satisfy us inside. It's just the truth. It's just the truth. We, it's hard not to. It's, it's the temptation. But we know that unless we break through the temptation of empty and dead things, we'll never discover the satisfaction of the living God. That's true for you. It's true for me. It's been true throughout the history of humanity. It's been true throughout the history of all the library of scriptures. It was true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we see story after story of dead people chasing dead things and the people of God saying, this is the living God and pointing to Yahweh, to God. The prophets and the Old Testament characters that we all have heard of and read They all do this. They all point to the uniqueness of Yahweh in contrast to uh, gods like Baal and Dagon and Moloch. And so in Deuteronomy 5, 6, 26, it says, he is the living God who speaks from the fire. Joshua 3, 10, he dwells with his people and he drives out their enemies. 1 Samuel 17, this is when David confronts the giant Goliath, right? He's upset because the Philistines are defying who? The armies of the living God. Second Kings 19, Hezekiah, man. Hezekiah gets real. He appeals to Yahweh for the deliverance that they're experiencing because the king of Assyria is mocking someone. Who is he mocking? The living God. It's written throughout scripture. Hezekiah gets crazy in Second Kings 19. He says this. He pleads to Yahweh. He says, truly, O Lord, The kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast out their gods into the fire. Why? For they are not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood wood and stone. He says they're fake. Therefore, they are destroyed. So now, Lord our God, please save us. Save us from his hand, and all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are God alone. Time and time again, the biblical narrative is that God's people struggle, but within themselves and within others, they're pointing north. They're pointing to the true and living God to say, turn away from these dead things. These are man-made, but God is the one who gives you life. God is the one who satisfies. He's the only one. Jeremiah gets into it. He claims the uniqueness of Yahweh so well. In chapter 10, he says, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great. Your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and all the kingdoms, there is none like you. I love Jeremiah. He goes on, if you read the next few verses, he calls the nations stupid and foolish. And I just love that when God, people of God get a little gritty in their speech. It makes me feel better about myself. But he gets nasty, man. He's like, they're stupid. They're so stupid. Because they keep turning to dead things, you guys. This is dumb. The nations are turning to these false gods when there's the living God right there in front of them. For all the counterfeit gods, all the false gods, all the things that we chase, that they chase, that are empty, all throughout the Old Testament, it's all pointing to the living God. It's all pointing to the son of the living God. He's the only one. 
John Piper puts it this way. He says, this is a fundamental difference between the Lord and the gods of the nations. The Lord is the living God. He's not a statue. He's not dead. He is alive. When Yahweh is on the move, it's not because someone put him on their shoulders. He comes and goes as as he pleases. And so Paul and Barnabas, in this moment, after healing the crippled man off to the side, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, demonstrating the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what they're doing right here is echoing all the prophets who were saying this throughout the library of scriptures. They're saying, you remember that? It's still the same story. And that's the same story for us. So what does this mean to us? While the Old Testament is screaming, Yahweh's the only one. He's the only living God. And it's pointing to the prophetic miracle that the Son of the living God is going to come and be fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Messiah. And then the New Testament is Jesus of Nazareth coming and fulfilling what they were talking about. The New Testament is that fulfillment, and Jesus is the one. So we need to look at ourselves and look at this truth and say, what are those things that I keep chasing and looking to satisfy me that ultimately are empty and cannot give me life? And how do I turn away from those things, Paul's warning, and turn towards the only living God, the only one who can give me life? We have to recognize our temptation to do that. We have to learn and act to turn away from the dead things and towards God. So you and I, we need to take this warning seriously and be convictional about it. So there's a couple ways we could do that. The first one is have faith. Look, this, Scott, that's really profound. <laughs> we learn, go have faith. It, I made that up. First one to ever say it, I know. It sounds too simple, but what I mean is is you need to live in a way that reflects the belief you claim to have. Read God's word and then go in in obedience and live it out. We need to be people who do that. You need to be around the people of God so that you can grow in your faith like the first century church in Acts. Be strengthened by God's people. Be encouraged by God's people when you're around. And be committed to God's people. We're committed to a lot of things. But God's people, church is an afterthought often. Our church family is an afterthought. We must exercise and strengthen our faith. And that's the starting point. Why? Because it builds a resilience of faith, a strengthening of faith. We have to have faith to know God, to please God. Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. When you seek him, you find him. Deuteronomy says, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with what? With all your heart, with all your soul. And here's, it's like, I come to church, I didn't get my four steps of things to do. I'll give you a couple. The more you seek him, the more you find him. The more you find him, the more you will long for him. So seek him. You will find him. And the more that you do that repeatedly, the more you will long for the living God. You're lacking in desire for your relationship with God. You don't know how to make sense of what's going on around you. Look for him. Seek him. 
and you will find him. And when you find him in our relationship with him, you will long for him. And you'll come back and walk through these doors and say, I love Jesus. I love Yahweh. He is my God. He is the living God. One of the biggest problems of our faith is that we have lacked awe and longing for the living God. I'm guilty of it. You're guilty of it. That's the second thing we must do. We must regain our awe. We must regain our longing for the living God. We lack in it. Like when was the last time you thought about your salvation and you were moved to tears because you remember that the almighty God of the universe, universe came down and loved and died for you, your sin and my sin. And he has the ability to operate this whole solar system and he's so good and so almighty, but then yet he'll sit next to you and be with you through your failure, through your struggle, through your tears. That is the living God that can fulfill nothing else. Last month when uh, Pastor Jesse, Josh, and myself, we went to Nashville and we were uh, sitting in a pastor's conference thing and there was a pastor talking about preaching with the power of God. And he said this, he said, a lot of sermons have great content, but with little power. And I just shrunk. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's bad. That's hard. That's an ouch inside of me. But he's not wrong. And I confessed to them at the time that I get in this habit of, of the homiletic, which is preparing for a sermon, and it's, it's work. It becomes work. And after years of doing it, you get caught up in, in doing the work but where's the power and where, at what point in the scripture that I'm learning to then get up and teach, is it piercing my soul and breaking my heart and convicting me? And so for you, no matter the personality that's up here preaching God's word to you, where in this passage and in this message is God pointing at you and pressing on your life? How will he use it to change you from within? When you're reading scripture and your time with, with God and through prayer, how is God piercing you? How is he convicting you? We have to regain our longing and awe of God. We've normalized him. It's as if he's our buddy sitting in the, in the seat next to us, and he's like our bro, which God is your friend. However, he created all this, and he loves you. Our faith should be marked by awe and longing for God. So much of it is what draws us to him constantly. I love the expressions of the psalmist. Psalm 42 says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. It's reiterated again in Psalm 84. It says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. I want desperately this type of longing and awe of our creator. I want that for me and I want that for you because the truth is he is the only one that can fulfill you. And so whatever we're chasing, whatever we're after, whatever glory we're looking to get, whatever money and things that... We're trying to meet our needs and be good to us, be God to us. We need to look at that and take Paul's word seriously and turn from it and say, God, it's only you. You are the living God. You're the only one that can satisfy. Jim Jones was a cult leader and he was evil. 
1978, he led his followers to drink a drink with cyanide in it. And in the world's largest cult-led murder-suicide, 909 members died instantly when they drank it. Jim Jones was not God. He was like the opposite. But I remember the words of his members. The closer they got to him, the more they saw in him human. And in contrast, read the Gospels. The more people got close to the person of Jesus Christ, the more in absolute awe they were of him. They were drawn to him. There was something unique. It wasn't his personality. It wasn't just funny. He had a way of speaking and a demonstration of power that was not man-made. And his followers, they, they doubt, they had fear, they struggled. But people saw in Jesus time and time again grace and love in his eyes. And the people that he would say, come on, let's do a meal together. They would be completely radically transformed after spending some time with them. That's power. That's the son of the living God. We need to be drawn in, in, in awe and longing for him. Tim Keller says the living God who revealed himself both at Mount Sinai and the cross is the only Lord who, if you find him, can truly fulfill you. If you fail him, can truly forgive you. Grace is a place where we have found him. And we are a people who struggle, but we've been forgiven by him and fulfilled in him. And so today we get to do something beautiful. We get to celebrate with people who have found that truth to be true and who have said, I'm going to turn away from dead things, repent and believe in the son of the living God because he is life and he sustains me and he satisfies me. He's the only one that can. And so we get to celebrate together. This is for those of us who know Jesus, who have never in a public way demonstrated the power of God inside of us. So in a moment, we're going to have baptisms. I don't know how many we're going to have, quite a bit. And when someone gets in, Pastor Josh is going to lower them, signifying the death, burial of Jesus Christ, and then raise them, signifying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's new life. So when they do, let's clap. Let's celebrate. Let's cheer. Some are going to cry, but we get to experience them together. And so, church, I want to pray that we would be people that would take Paul's warning seriously. We would turn away from dead things and towards the living God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we know that this is a struggle for us. We struggle because what we see and feel and touch every single day are the things that we, we love. You've given us work and we're blessed by it. You've given us families and we're blessed by it. You've given us each other and, and some money, maybe not a lot, but we have some and we have a, a roof over our heads and, and food to eat. But God, may we not be mistaken and look to those gifts to give to us what only you can give to us. You are the source of those gifts. So may we turn away from vain things, as Paul says, and we turn to you, the living God. May you sustain us. May you give us life. Father, we're, we're th wherever we're at, with whatever we're chasing and holding on to, we repent and we lay those things down. 
Be with us. Be in us. Fulfill us. We love you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.